So the question I raised this morning is, how should Christian parents respond toward children who rebel? See, the human tendency is either that we withdraw emotionally, I want to call it, you know, fight or flight, okay? We, we want to withdraw emotionally in order to protect ourselves, or we get angry and we lash out. As Christians and Christian parents, we must ask, how would God have me act? How would he have me respond in this difficult situation? Because even if our children have not gone off the deep end in rebellion, every parent has to deal with kids who hurt us with wrong behavior. See, I'm hoping that we ask ourselves, how have I hurt my parents with wrong behavior? How have my, how, how do I respond as, as a parent? How do I respond as a grandparent? I mean, all of these things just, you know, play into that. How should we relate to our children as Christian parents? I want to read in Luke 15. We're going to read this one more time. Beginning in verse 11, the story of the prodigal son, and it says this. And he said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be impoverished. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country and he, he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him. And he ran and embraced him and and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has now, excuse me, and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found and they began to celebrate. Now his older brother was in the field, and when he had came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. And when he became, but he became angry and was willing, uh, not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. And he said to him, 
Uh, and he answered and said to his father, look, for so many years I have been serving you and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a, a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. But he had to, we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. Loving Father, we thank you for this day and we thank you for the opportunity just to be in your house. And Father, we thank you and we look forward to be in your house in heaven. And Father, how that uh, stirs our hearts. I pray, Father, that today um, you would open our hearts, open our minds. Father, I pray that you would help us to um, just to open our, our pocketbooks and, and to give generously, Father, so that others also may be found. Father, I pray that you would guide us as we continue to seek you. I pray, Father, that in this place, in this moment, that you would speak to each one of our hearts as only you can. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for how he, what he did on the cross for each one of us. And we thank you, Father, for the Holy Spirit, who is the indwelling Holy Spirit, who is our teacher and our guide. So Holy Spirit, I ask that even now you would just show yourself mighty in this place and in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. You know, this parable, in this parable, the Father, he, he represents God and his response towards sinners. And it's no accident that the Bible constantly and repeatedly calls God our Father and we his children. And, and, and in my thinking, the, the, the basic all-encompassing principle, if you will, of Christian parenting is that I must relate to my children like God relates to me as his child. I must relate to my children like God relates to me as his child. And so all of scripture becomes our manual for how to raise our children because it really uh, reveals to us what God is like and, and how he relates to his children. And while this one parable is not comprehensive, it doesn't teach everything about that, but it does provide us with an important aspect of parenting, especially, I want to say, in Christian fathers, okay? Dads. Namely, that hurting parents need to demonstrate God's love and forgiveness to their children. That's when it's the hardest, is when you are hurting. And you, you, you either want to just, just back out and, and not be a part of it, or you want to lash out and, and, and make somebody pay. And so we really, we really need to, to hear this, that hurting parents need to demonstrate God's love and forgiveness to their children. Because this parable does not teach us how to discipline our children. It's not for that. That's not what he's trying to put forth here. And, and it's an important matter that we can't ignore. We need to discipline our children. But in my experience, many Christian parents are heavy on discipline. But they fall short on showing love and grace to their children. 
Now, I'm not diminishing the need for consistent discipline. It is crucial, especially in the early years, to teach children to obey and to discipline them um, lovingly when they do disobey. But I contend that love must be the foundation and the atmosphere surrounding discipline. Because if the children sense and they feel our love for them, they will respond more readily to the discipline when they know that we love them, when they know that we have their best interest at heart. But you see, God's love and grace are the greatest motivation for our obedience. His love, his grace. You see, I want my kids to know that God is gracious and loving because they have seen me demonstrate his grace and his love toward them. I haven't always done that correctly. I haven't always done that well. But before we look at the forgiveness and the love exemplified by the Father in this, par- in this parable, we need to look at um, and try to understand the Father's hurt. How much this Father, this parent is hurting. And folks, this Father is very, is very much hurting. I mean, every parent has expectations for his or her children. Every parent desires that his kids would grow up and embrace their values. Every Christian parent wants his children to be a contributing member of society, a a, a wonderful member of of our community and society, but also do something positive for the cause of Jesus Christ. I mean, as parents, that's what we desire. And so the pain runs deep when a child rebels. When a child is rebellious, and this pain can be broken down into, I want to say, at least three component parts here. And the the first one is the, the pain of rejection. We've all been rejected at some point in our life. And when our kids rebel, they are, they are rejecting us. And we, we, we see the rejection of his person. I mean, many times we read over verse 12 very quickly, too quickly. I mean, it says there, it says, the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. Don't take that lightly. There's a rejection of his person here. I mean, can you imagine going to your own father and saying, I want my share of my inheritance right now? I mean, my dad would probably laugh at me. Say, you already got it, son. But the the thing is, is if the father raised the issue, that's one thing. But it's rude and shocking for a son to raise the issue with his father. He is in effect saying, I don't care about you. All I want is your money. Give it to me now so I can get out of here and enjoy myself without you around. That's really what he's saying. You know, Dr. Kenneth Bailey, he, um, he studied this parable Think about this for over 20 years. He lived in the Near East and he studied the culture and he said, there is no example, none. There is no example in history or in that culture of a son asking for his inheritance before his father's death. He dug up one modern example in the country of Iran 
uh, where and it was kind of a similar situation. And he said that the parents were shocked and viewed the son's action as equivalent as wishing the father's death. You have the rejection of his person. I, I, I just want to be away from you. You also have the rejection of his heritage. And Dr. Bailey says that the inheritance would have been primarily from family land in this agrarian or agricultural culture society that they lived in. And so what would happen is, so the father would have divided the land and the prodigal son would have had to sold off his portion of the land to get the cash that he needed for his fling. But such a thing was unheard of in that society. I mean, it was a public disgrace. I mean, the boy saying, I don't want to be associated with this family any longer. I don't want to live here. I don't want to raise my family here. I don't want anything to do with my family heritage. I mean, it would be like someone here in the United States a child picking up and saying, I don't want anything to do with, with how I was raised. I'm going to go follow a guru in India. I'm totally disavowing myself of anything here. But there's also the rejection of his values. I mean, the boy did not go and join a local synagogue in the distant country. He didn't go and, 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 and try to serve the Lord. I mean, you think about this. Instead, he squandered his estate on loose living. He wasn't following the Lord. Folks, that tears up any godly parent to see their child wallowing in the pig pen, in the pigsty. And the father felt the pain of rejection. But then there's also the pain of humiliation. I mean, think about this. These things don't happen in secret. Especially in small towns where everybody knows everybody and everything about everybody. And as soon as the boy would try to sell off the family property, it would have been known all over town. Everybody would have been shocked at his audacious attitude towards his father and and the callousness with selling the family property. And some may have even criticized the father for permitting it to happen and, and, and for not raising his son properly. And he would have had to endure the whispers and the stares in the marketplace. The little side conversations, that's him over there. He's the one whose son sold the property. You know it, you've experienced it, so have I. Even to receive the sympathy of those who were more understanding would seem a bit humiliating. But then there's the pain of guilt. While this father represents God and God has no guilt because he's always, he always acts perfectly on an earthly plane, any parent is going to feel some guilt when their child goes astray. Some of it may be true guilt because, I mean, what parent has not made mistakes, Okay. I mean, we, we're all fallen creatures and we, 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 we make mistakes and we would love to erase those if given the chance. But much of that guilt is what I want to call false guilt based on the nagging feeling that maybe we have somehow failed as a parent. One of my points is this, the church, the body of Christ, the fellowship of believers should help 
ought to help alleviate the pain of hurting parents. I mean, we can't do much to lessen the pain of rejection, although we can show acceptance. But we can help diminish the pain of humiliation and false guilt by not being judgmental. There's always one more circumstance to the situation that you don't know. And just because someone has a child that is going astray does not mean that that parent has done anything wrong. I mean, we're all accountable to God for what we do. I mean, we need to understand that God has wayward children. But he's not a failure. He's the perfect father. But he doesn't have any perfect children. And while parenting and parental training and influence are major factors, understand this, that kids these days are bombarded with the world. They're bombarded with the flesh. They're bombarded by the devil. I mean, all of this plays in. Even the child from a model Christian home is at best an immature believer who can easily fall to ter- into terrible sins. So godly parents who do their best to, of their ability to seek to raise their children in the faith, they can still have children who turn away from God and from church and from you know being in the faith. I think this is huge. I mean, there, this will be the exception Not the rule, but it can happen. We've wrongly taken Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it to mean that if you train them properly, that it's guaranteed that they will follow the Lord. So when we think of it in those terms, what happens is, is our faulty logic says that if the child goes astray, then the parent must be to blame. Folks, the the Proverbs are not ironclad promises. They state general truths about life. And it is generally true that if you train up a child properly in the way they should go, they will follow the Lord as adults. That is true. But it's not a guaranteed promise and therefore it is not necessarily a sign of parental failure when a child rebels. If there has been an obvious parental failure, then we as the church should help a hurting parent to deal biblically with the idea and the area of the failure. But it is wrong for us to be judgmental towards other parents based on what their kids' actions are. See, the father in the parable was also hurt by his older son. The son refused to come into the celebration of his younger brother. I mean, his father had to go out in front of his guests. He had to go out in front of his guests and appeal to his son to come in. And the son was rude and the son was disrespectful. And he accused the father of being unfair and he even implicates the father in the actions of the prodigal. And he he says, this son of yours... He doesn't call him my brother. He says, this son of yours. And he took your wealth. 
And so he's implicating the father in that and he's accusing his father of enabling or endorsing his brother's sin. But in spite of the older son's rudeness, the father acted with grace and love toward him just as he did toward the other younger son. And although he was hurting, this father was loving and he was ready to forgive. I want to look at both of those, his love and his readiness to forgive. So in the father's love, there's seven sides here to this jewel. I want to go through them quickly. But the first one is this, is relinquishment without rejection. You know, the father let the prodigal son go. He did not reject him. Even though he was going against him, he did not reject him. In his hurt, he could have said something like, you know what, I'll give you the inheritance. But if you take it and leave, I never want to see your face again. And that sounds a lot like maybe what we might do. Oh, we will begrudgingly give it to you. I don't ever want to see you around here again. Don't ask me for anything. And that would be sometimes our attitude. See, he granted his young son the respect of making decisions, even poor decisions, without rejecting him as his son. And the younger child, the more, you know, the younger a child is, the more the parents must control those choices. But as a child nears adulthood, the parent is not loving and not acting in love if he refuses to let go and attempts to make and control every decision of a young person's life. Because from the time children are old enough to know right from wrong, parents need to be instilling in them the fact that they must answer to God. They must answer to God for their moral decisions. Each one of us is responsible for that. See, if you love your child, you will be able to relinquish control as your child matures without rejecting the child for making wrong choices. But notice also his deep concern. There's relinquishment without rejection. Then there's this deep concern. This father was constantly scanning the horizon, looking, looking for his son wanting to know when he was coming back. And even though the boy had wronged his father, the father still deeply cared for him. He didn't protect his hurt feelings by hardening his heart. See, a self-focused parent would have said, well, after what he's done to me, I don't care. I could care less uh, what happens to that ungrateful boy. But this father, he would have said, I absolutely care what happens to my son. He's also got this heartfelt compassion. I mean, when he saw his boy in rags, his bare feet bloodied by the journey, smelling like the pigsty from which he came, the father didn't say, well, how disgusting. It serves you right. I told you so. Go get cleaned up and dressed properly and then you can come home. No, he felt compassion. He felt compassion on his son for where he had come from to where he was. He hurt with his son. And you see the outward affection as well. The father ran toward him, embraced him, and it says, and he kissed him. 
He doesn't even know yet whether his boy is repentant. It's enough to know that he's coming home, that he's returned. And the father's love overflows in this demonstration of physical affection. He could have waited at the house until the boy was all the way there. And then he could have given him an icy stare. And he said, oh, so you come back now. But instead he ran to him. He openly showed him his love. Dads, I want to say this with all the compassion that I can. Don't hesitate to show physical affection towards your sons as they grow older. They need to know that you still love them. They need you to wrap your arm around their neck and hug them in tight. Even as the, I don't care how old they get. I still love it when my dad does it to me and he's 84. They need that. They need to know that you love them. But also I want to talk about the unaffected humility here. See, in that culture, it would have been disgraceful for a man to pick up his robe and gird up his loins and run. But that's what it says he did. He picked up his robe and he ran towards his son. To run in a robe, a man would have to pull it up and it was thought to be undignified for an older man. But this father was not concerned about public opinion. He girded up his, his robe and he ran to his boy and he valued his son more than he cared about what other people thought. He also has undeserved generosity. He brought out the best robe. He brought out a ring and sandals and he, he killed the fattened calf. And did the boy deserve that? He'd already wasted his share of the inheritance. Folks, that was pure grace. For him to do that for his son, even though all he had already been through, to his other son, even though he was rude and disrespectful, the father said, all, all that is mine is yours. See, there is a balance, of course, between such undeserved generosity and the need for discipline. We don't know. But probably the, the prodigal son had to experience the consequences of squandering his share of the estate. But listen, grace does not annul the principle of sowing and reaping. My guess is that most Christian parents err on the side of being overly stern. And listen, our kids ought to be able to understand God's grace because we have been gracious toward them. They should see that. So let me ask you, are you as gracious with your kids as God is with you? Wow. Are you as gracious with your children as God is with you? Because here we see un undeserved acceptance. I mean, the son was not put on probation. He was not put on probation. He was not accepted home on the condition that he meet certain standards. True, he had repented of his wrong, as his confession shows. But the most likely reading of verse 21 leaves off the last phrase, make me as one of your hired men. 
You see, the father cut him off before he got to that point, and he showers him with blessings to show his undeserved acceptance of his son. And although he had been hurt very deeply, we see that the father loved his son totally, all the way. And that's how God's love is toward each one of us, is he loves us all the way. That's how our love must be toward our children. But not only did this father demonstrate God's love towards his son, we also see his readiness to forgive. I mean, the boy could not receive or experience the father's forgiveness until he repented. But the blockage was on the boy's part, not the father's. The father was ready and eager to forgive. At the first sign of repentance from his son, he wasn't bitter. He wasn't going to make the boy pay for what he had done. But I want you to note a couple of aspects here of forgiveness. This forgiveness was immediate. It was immediate. Listen, making someone earn forgiveness over time is not forgiveness. Making someone pay is not forgiveness. Who needs forgiveness when they have to pay off their debt? To say, I'll forgive that boy when I'm good and ready and not before is not to forgive. Forgiveness is immediate. Forgiveness must be an immediate, decisive action. But he also did it totally. He didn't leave the boy with the burden of something to live down. He, didn't, he forgave him totally once and for all, and it was over. Which brings me to forgotten. <laughs> once forgiven, it was put away. The father did not keep part of the boy's wrongs in order to reserve that as ammunition for a later disagreement. I mean, obviously the father <laughs> could never erase what had happened from his memory. But to forget is a decision that all the wrongs will never be brought up again. That's what God means when he says that he will not remember our sins and hold them against us. It's a conscious decision to forget those wrongs. You know, a friend of Clara Barton, founder of the American Red Cross, once reminded her of an especially cruel thing that had been done to her years before. But Mrs. Barton, she, she seemed not to recall it. And don't you remember, her friend asked. And she said, no, I distinctly remember forgetting it. We need to practice that some. I distinctly remember forgetting it. Because that's how God's forgiveness is toward us. I mean... That's how we must forgive our children when they wrong us. It was also costly. Think about this. Forgiveness always is. When you forgive, when you forgive someone else, you bear the cost of what that other person did. And that person goes free. That's how forgiveness works. 
If he bears the cost, then that is justice. If that person bears the cost, it's justice. But if you bear it, that's forgiveness. The father didn't have this martyr complex like we do sometimes. We might say this to someone who, a child who has wronged us, look at what you've put me through. He didn't demand pity. Look how much I hurt. He simply absorbed the son's wrongs. But it was also restorative. The father restored his son to the full privileges of sonship. He didn't have a servant status. He he was not a hired hand who had to earn his keep and, and could be fired. He was a son and with all the rights and privileges of a son. And forgiveness, this is where we fail. Forgiveness means full restoration. Not partial. Forgiveness means full restoration. And praise God for that. You also notice not the, I'm almost done here, not the, not the guilt blame approach. You know, instead of truly forgiving, many people establish a, cor- a scorecard of guilt and blame. And to the extent that the son was guilty, the father feels justified in maintaining blame against him. And the father excuses his own guilt by blaming the son. Hey, if I can blame you, I don't, I don't have to be accountable for that. And so what we see here is, is he's not doing that. And, and the father, you know, it, can it, the father here does not excuse his own guilt by blaming the son. But he truly forgave his son. Rather than playing this guilt and blame, he's like, no, I forgive you. You are restored to full status. But see, this is the difference. It's active forgiveness and not passive forgiveness. Passive forgiveness says, okay, I'll just let bygones be bygones. But it stops there. The person does not go on to reestablish the relationship. But you see, active forgiveness, here's the key, adds kindness. Active forgiveness adds kindness. Active forgiveness brings out the best robe. Active forgiveness brings out the ring. Active forgiveness brings out the the, the sandals. And it kills the fattened calf in order to celebrate. It is anxious not only to forgive the past, but also to restore the relationship. And you know, this morning I've piled up a lot of points here in an attempt to get you to see the main point, namely that this father lavished love and forgiveness upon his son. Even though both sons hurt the father, he demonstrated the the gracious love of God towards both of them. And even though both sons wronged him, the father was willing to forgive them both quickly and totally. The prodigal son received it. We don't know what the older son did. And the word prodigal means extravagant or excessive. And according to 
Charles Spurgeon, he entitled a message on this passage called Prodigal Love for the Prodigal Son. Extravagant, excessive. As our worship team comes back up, I just want to close out with this. You know, each person here, every single one of us, especially those of us who are parents, Sometimes we, we must ask, our, ask ourselves, do I demonstrate this kind of love and forgiveness toward my children? Do I, am I all about the law? Am I all about the sternness? And I ask this question, would my kids gain any idea of what a gracious, our gracious God looks like by the way that I treat them? We have a great story here. We have a great parable. But would they know by the way that I treat them that God is a gracious God? Even if your children have hurt you through their rebellion, you're still to show them God's love and mercy. Through your love, your children should be able to see that God is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. You know, this morning, if you have rebelled against God, you need to know that he stands ready to pour out his love and his forgiveness on you. Like the father of the prodigal, God is eagerly watching for you to turn in repentance toward him. And when you do, he will run to you and embrace you and forgive those things that you've done against him. Forgiving all your past. The crop's still going to come up. Those wild seeds that you sowed, the crop's still going to come up. But there has been forgiveness from the Father. You know, it's amazing because he is that kind of gracious and loving Father. Would you pray with me? Loving Father, we thank you for this time. And Father, we fall short in so many ways. We open our mouth and we, we yell when we should sit quietly. Father, we feel guilty and so then we blame others. Rather than coming to you and just saying, Father, forgive me. I need your grace. I need your mercy. Father, I pray that we would stop running, blaming everyone else for our sin. And Father, that we would come to you and just lay it at your feet. Father, that is exactly why Jesus Christ died for us. I pray that today each... Each of us would know 
the love and the grace that you've given us. Oh, the debt must be paid. But thank you, Lord Jesus, for paying our debt. God, I pray that we would surrender to you this morning. Father, that that times of restoration, that we would just climb out of the pigsty and head back to you, recognizing that you love us so very much. Father, the reality is, is I can't do that for anyone but me. If I could, I have, would have done it already for all of our nation. But Father, we are individually responsible to you for that response. So I pray, Father, that today we would respond to you. Lord, you love us so much. Thank you for this time. Holy Spirit, have your way in each of our hearts. And may we be obedient to all you ask us to do. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.